following is a production of Government CIO Media. Welcome to Cybercast. I'm Kirsten Todd. And I'm Roger Cressy. We're pleased to have Jim Miller join us today on Cybercast. Jim has served in a number of very important positions in government, most recently as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from May 2012 to January 2014, where he was the Principal Civilian Advisor to the Secretary of Defense on a whole host of national security-related issues. Jim is now President of Adaptive Strategies, LLC. He is also on the Board of Directors of the Atlantic Council, a member of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, as well as the Defense Science Board. Jim also serves as a senior fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center, as well as at the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins University. At the Defense Science Board, he co-chaired a task force on cyber deterrence that issued its report last year, and really is one of the best documents that we have seen so far on framing the issue of cyber deterrence and how the United States should address it. And that is the principal reason why you are here today. So Jim, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Roger, and thank you, Kirsten. It's great to be here with you today. Thanks very much, Jim. So we'll start in talking about one of the more topical issues uh, today, which is how the Russians have influenced our elections or how they've impacted them. And what we do know is that there has been information warfare, uh, information used as a tool for interfering in the United States elections in uh, 2016. So if we know and we acknowledge, as the intelligence authorities and agencies have done, that we have this interference, why are we having such a difficult time deterring that ability of, of Russia to do this? And what is the role of our government uh, in deterring this threat? That's a great question and one that is obviously very topical. I would just add that the intelligence community, including the FBI, came out recently and said clearly that the Russians are continuing their efforts to influence our domestic politics and continuing their hacking of systems that would allow them to go beyond that if they so chose. I think our failure of deterrence on this Russian influence operations really has two principal causes. The first is that it appears so lucrative and so low risk to the Russians and particularly to President Vladimir Putin. Some of that came out of his personal animus by all reporting for Secretary of State Clinton. And some of it comes from a longstanding desire on his part to take the U.S. down a notch in the world based on his belief that we've overstepped in our attempts to influence events globally, that we were effectively a hyperpower, if you will, and as the French once called us, and that Russia's rise and bringing down the U.S. a notch were both in his interest. The second reason why it's been so difficult for us to deter Russian influence operations is that we've not had a clear policy, strategy, or response. When something looks low cost, high payoff to your adversary in this case, and when there's a lack of a coherent response, of course they're going to continue to do it. And so to the extent that uh, members of this administration have taken steps to attempt to increase costs, and particularly to the extent that Congress has directed the imposition of sanctions, those will help. But until our government speaks with one voice, and that includes the voice from the top, it's going to be very difficult to have any chance of deterring ongoing Russian interference. So, Jim, let's talk about cyber deterrence because I've run across a bunch of former DOD officials whose foreheads are flatter than they were when they first came in because they banged their head against the wall for so long trying to figure out how to 
frame this issue and present it in a way that is a effective policy option. And I think we are all struggling. And I think from the layman's perspective, people don't understand why we've been unsuccessful at deterring cyber activity by not just nation states, but by even lowercase adversaries. And there's a fundamental question around this. And I think really it would be helpful for you to explain why is cyber deterrence so damn difficult? Roger, I'd point to four factors in particular. First is challenges associated with clarity. We need to have clarity about who we're trying to deter from what. And when you have that clarity, you have to accept that you're not going to have an effective deterrence policy that doesn't identify the key actors you're trying to deter or that attempts to deter everything. So on that score, our Defense Science Board report, and I should say I'm speaking today for myself and not for other members of the Defense Science Board or for the department, we suggested focusing on Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and understanding that other actors are important as well, but get it straight there. And some of the deterrence policies that are established for those countries will then have a carryover effect on others as well. So clarity about the focus of the deterrence policy and strategy, and then the what. You still see many comments today that suggest that we should be able to deter all cyber intrusions or to deter cyber espionage. We are not going to be able to do that effectively. So what we need to focus on is the significant attacks and the most significant intrusions that have the potential to open doors to other types of attacks, including to influence operations. So number one is clarity. And let me just list the others rather than go into the, into, into the same depth on them. The second is capacity. And that's the capacity, if you want to deter, it's both to deny benefits to your adversary. We can talk for the rest of the time if you want about where we fall short there. And it's the capacity to impose costs. When we think about the capacity to impose costs, it requires a domestic process that allows that to happen, and preferably on a timely basis. The third is a campaign approach is really needed. Because without a campaign approach, and I don't mean a political campaign, I mean a systematic, <laughs> thoughtful campaign the way the Department of Defense does planning for operations. Without a campaign approach, you're responding. And for an effective deterrence policy, you have to think it through in advance. You have to display some capabilities. You have to make some credible statements about um, if thens, if you do this type of action, it will be unacceptable. And so a campaign approach is really necessary, and it hasn't been present to date. And the fourth I would just highlight is that there's a significant degree of self-deterrence. In other words, our concerns about living in a cyber glass house have prevented, in some instances, the United States from taking action against or in response to adversaries doing cyber attacks on us. I include the Iran distributed denial of service attacks in 2012-2013, include you know, a number of others as well. The problem with being self-deterred, of course, is that even if we see a flashing red light for ourselves, and so we stop, we're giving a green light to the adversary to keep going up the escalation ladder. So uh, understand that when we respond, there'll be a risk of escalation, whether it's escalation of economic sanctions or other actions. But if we don't respond, there'll be a certainty of one-sided escalation by the other side. I think one of the challenges on this is the not truly defined question of collateral damage. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've self-deterred in the past. We're afraid of the collateral damage. And I think we're all, and that collateral damage in cyberspace is everything from reverse engineering, what we throw over the wall, to a asymmetrical approach by the adversary. Oh, we are punishing them for action X. Well, actually, they're going to reply by going after us laterally in sector Y. And then it becomes an escalation issue. And I think there are some times we kind of put ourselves into a corner and say, we can't be afraid of that because of the capabilities we have and our ability to affect 
consequences on the adversary. How do we get out of this self-deterrence do loop, if you will? Roger, I think your assessment is spot on. And step one for getting out of that do loop is to have, a, as I said, a campaign plan. And that means thinking this through in advance. I don't think we go to, if you remember Herman Kahn's famous escalation ladder with multiple rungs, it's not a finely tuned exact plan in the sense of if then in detail for the next month, year, et cetera. But it's working it through in the way that military planners have done in the Department of Defense for many years. And that in some instances, other agencies have done well. FEMA is an example. They don't know exactly where the hurricane is going to hit, but they have- They're ready. They have, they're they're ready. ready. They have plans in place and they adapt the plans to real time. So I think when you, when you do that planning and you do what in the Department of Defense we call wargaming, but you can call scenario-based analysis as well, and work through the escalation dynamics a little bit, that'll give a bit of confidence that your response is in the box. And you may never get it exactly right, but you want to avoid having a response that's so weak that it signals that this is an acceptable activity. And you want to obviously avoid something that is so strong that it causes the other side to go off the deep end. And so that's the balance. And you've got to, if you don't think it through in advance, and if you don't work it through, you'll be in response mode and to some degree playing catch-up ball when it happens. And campaign planning, as hard as it is, and it takes time, is a fundamental part of getting over that. So just as a follow-on to that, one of the conversations that we've had with General Alexander, Keith Alexander, when he served on the commission on cybersecurity back in 2016, he talked a lot about pre-event planning and the need to come together and taking pages out of the Pentagon playbook and how to work effectively. But you make an interesting analogy to FEMA because you talk about, you know, they don't always know where the hurricanes are coming or what is happening. But oftentimes what our nation has confronted is until we have the disaster, we don't actually figure out how to respond effectively. So one could argue that it was Katrina that prepared us for the hurricane season last season, but we had to go through Katrina. And certainly we don't want to have to go through that equivalent. What do we need to be doing in government to more effectively prepare for cyber events? I think we understand the problem set well enough to begin systematic planning. And again, the planning is intended to think through Uh, U.S. responses if a potential adversary undertakes cyber attack in the United States. And then based on that, to work back and say, what do we want to communicate to that potential adversary today so that they see that they shouldn't cross the Rubicon? And then what capabilities do we have in our pocket today and what capabilities and accesses can we develop that are credible responses? And finally, not just how do we communicate in words, but do we want to do some demonstrations? Do we want to do exercises? And those exercises should show both hopefully over time, improved resilience. There's a lot of work to be done. We can talk about that later, but also offensive capabilities. And my own view is that the principal impediment to effective deterrence by cost imposition, by response today, is not that our potential adversaries think we don't have the capabilities, but it's that they think we don't have the will. And so it will require undertaking some response, and we'll have to build up a consistent pattern of responding again through all means of national action, not necessarily in cyberspace, though cyberspace should be on the table. We often talk about the collaboration of intent and capabilities, and that you can have intent, but you don't have the capacity or the capability. You can have the capability, but you don't have the intent, but that the true destruction or the true threat comes from the combined intent with marrying those capabilities that match to it. That's right. So one of the classic elements of deterrence is if you attempt to do X, you need to understand we're going to respond with at least Y. We might respond with Z, right? And so to use the idea of exercises and deterrence that way, in the physical world, everyone knows what our capability is. 
right? We have, from a nuclear perspective, there's a triad. Our conventional power projection force is second to none, Navy, air, and, and land. And so any potential adversary knows what we could potentially do to them. Where this analogy falls apart in cyberspace is the sophisticated adversaries know what our capability is. But from a deterrence and a declaratory policy, we can't talk about it. Or we've chosen not to talk about it for a series of reasons that are somewhat understandable, but are not necessarily available for the non-classified world to understand. How do we deal with this issue of this is what our deterrent capability is in the physical world, and everyone knows it, Congress, the American people, everybody else, and it's not as clear in the cyber world? How do you reconcile that? Roger, I think it's an issue, but it's not a binding issue today. And let me explain why I think that's the case with two points. Point one is that we believe, and I believe strongly, that several of our adversaries have extensive cyber capabilities that they have not used against the United States. There are public reports of, to take one example, Russian penetration of the electrical grid and other elements of our critical infrastructure. So in that sense, one could argue that there's a degree of deterrence of that type of attack that's operating today, or you can say, and my preference is to say, that deterrence isn't yet being stressed because we're not in a deep crisis or conflict with this other actor. I think when you come down to severe crisis or conflict, that this will be stressed. And then your point about the lack of clarity and lack of demonstration of these capabilities could come back to bite. And what that does is it doubles the importance of taking some actions in response to even relatively smaller cyber intrusions. And in my view, to having cyber be part of that portfolio. Point two is that for an attack that's an influence operation by Russia as somewhat enabled by cyber, military options, naval, air, ground forces are not on, obviously not on the table, right? And so we're looking <laughs> at- Deploy the carrier strike group for <laughs> some really bad Facebook manipulation. We're looking at obviously a different set of actions that would include economic sanctions as they have, not nearly as steep or yet as sustained as they should be, uh, would include additional political actions. And that, in my view, could include cyber. And that has to be thought through very carefully. Because if we're essentially hacking back to either shut down or otherwise penalize the actors in Russia that are undertaking this types of uh, uh, cyber-enabled operations, then we're in a game that could escalate. So we need to think that through quickly, but again, reiterates the importance of getting campaign plan framework in place. So when we look at the role of the Department of Defense in protecting critical infrastructure, we're not focusing a lot from the perspective of government on cyber. So the Department of Homeland Security convened a summit at the end of July that looked at how to protect our critical infrastructure. And it focused on the financial sector, the telecommunications sector, and the energy sector. And what was missing in that discussion was how military and civilian capabilities can come together to protect that infrastructure. Cyberspace is the only domain where we ask industry to protect itself. How can government organize more effectively in looking at how to align the capabilities of the Department of Defense, align military capabilities with civilian capabilities in protecting our infrastructure. We constantly hear last week uh, at the end of July, the statistic was 88% of critical infrastructure is owned and operated by the private sector. We know that there is a role here for government, but we're continuing to struggle with how to define both the military capabilities and civilian capabilities in doing so. That's a great question, Kirsten. I would say three points in response. First is that the Department of Defense, largely through the NSA, has provided technical assistance to the Department of Homeland Security and through it to other agencies and departments and to the private sector. In addition to that, the department 
for a number of years had something called the Enduring Security Framework in which it worked with private sector companies, predominantly IT, in order to partner and deal with some real threats. And it it involved sharing of classified information and it involved a program of action. Keith Alexander, when he was head of NSA and Cybercom, as well as his deputy at the time, Chris Inglis, deserve a lot of credit for the work that was done during that period. So there's that technical support role. And I'm not a person who supports the department being in the lead on the defense of the homeland. But that technical support role is vital because of the incredible skills, particularly that NSA brings to bear. Second key role for the Department of Defense is to take all the steps it can take to defend not just its weapon systems, where it has a lot of work to do, and improving the cybersecurity of weapon systems, but also to improve the resilience of the critical infrastructure that supports military operations. That won't solve all the nation's critical infrastructure challenges, but if DOD steps up more, as it's beginning to do in some cases, in some areas, to deal with cyber resilience of the most critical functions, including electricity, water, and parts of the transportation uh, network in particular, if it takes steps to improve its resilience and the resilience of the private sector companies that support it, it will both allow a bootstrapping into the broader private sector and will show some models for how it can be done effectively. And I'm sure that the department will make some mistakes and so there'll be learning involved. I think it can turn that dial up quite a bit. And third point, very briefly, we're organized very poorly for national cyber deterrence or cyber response posture. And we continue to adapt. And I think these adaptations have been helpful to date. I think we're going to have to move to something that resembles what the Brits have done with a national cyber agency. An intermediate step might be a joint interagency task force that would probably be, and I would recommend be headed by a civilian, but that bring the capabilities and the authorities of Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, FBI, for that matter, Coast Guard, National Guard, and then bring in state and local as well. And it would have to have a critical liaison with the private sector. I don't know that we're ready for that step yet, but we need to have much more effective integrated planning in support of both defensive government assets and in working with the private sector. So as we look at that, because that's a the task force is a very interesting idea, and you think about the discussion around agencies, certainly when administrations come in, they're going to change titles, they're going to change positions, but they look for certain types of authority. So there's obviously been a lot of discussion about the removal of the White House cybersecurity coordinator. And again, don't get hung up on the titles, but what essentially has happened is that that overall strategic authority has been taken out of the White House and delegated to the agencies in a different way. How do you see that playing into what you've just said? Are they separate? Do you believe that you can still integrate this authority right now? Because I do think that the task force, perhaps working toward the development of an agency, are steps that need to be taken. But do you see that removal of that authority in the White House as a step backward? Or do you understand how that could fit into this as a progressive step? The elimination of the position of cybersecurity advisor for the president was a fundamental error in my view. I think Rob Joyce was well qualified to do it. There are others who could do the job. You need that high-level coordination and you need that high-level direction to bring the departments and agencies together. And there's no substitute for it. In military speak, we talk about the need for coordination at the strategic level, which is the higher levels of government and with respect to planning. The Joint Interagency Task Force or an agency would be responsible at the operational level for implementing that guidance. You need both. 
I absolutely agree. I mean, I think this is a real challenge that we're facing right now. I think Rob Joyce was arguably one of the most technically competent individuals we've had serving in the White House on cybersecurity. And the need to have that overall strategic authority is clear. And now how we follow up in this space, because a strategy has to come from the White House. You can't have a cybersecurity strategy from the government, I don't believe, at an agency level, because you have to have the buy-in of all the agencies. And we don't have a hierarchy, a legitimate hierarchy of agencies. And so you have to have the White House come out with that so that you do get toward this interagency evolution on cybersecurity. You need a national level strategy, a national level policy, and a national coordinator to put it together and to push its implementation. No question. So let's talk about what industry wants. And we'll go back to the old gunshot analogy. So for years, it was industry doesn't want to be told by government, I've been shot, right? We kind of know when we've been shot in cyberspace, but that's kind of what government had to offer. Hey, you've been shot, and this is where you got shot, and oh, look, let's see if we can help you triage it and help you recover. Large segment of different industries, different cross-sectors will say, we're in pretty good shape in understanding incident response for ourselves. Where we need to have the help is identify where the shooter is before they pull the trigger so that we can make changes to our defensive posture to prevent the attack or at least minimize its effect. So where I think a lot of folks in the private sector are saying, government needs to be able to tell us way before what's going on. Somebody on Wall Street said to us, what I'd like to know from government is, tell me what's going on in the Iranian underground when it comes to malware development. What are they talking about? What are they looking at? And give me that idea, give me that information, protect sources and methods, so that I can then configure my defenses in order to anticipate and then minimize the impact. We haven't bridged that gap yet. Based on what you saw when you were still in government and what you're seeing today, is that a gap that should be bridged? And if it is, how do we bridge it? Roger, it's absolutely a gap that still exists. I think it's being bridged today largely by efforts in the private sector where firms, including the one with which I'm involved, I don't want to do it, you know, an advertisement as part, you can. As part of this, <laughs> including, yeah. including, all good, including in-game and others, are helping to identify not just for a given company after a major intrusion, but on an ongoing basis, what are the activities on their networks, the intrusions, the anomalous activities, that potentially pose threats and to then work to find out who's behind them and whether action needs to be taken. There's been uh, over, including the time I was in government, there was a relatively small degree of intelligence sharing only in very extreme circumstances about potential attack vectors. In part, it's because of limitations on intelligence, but it's more because of limitations in the procedures for intelligence sharing. I think that an organizational change is, is needed and it may be that new authorities are needed to push this classified information down to companies that are not the largest companies. For companies that are big enough to afford to have a so-called SCIF and to have a sensitive compartment information facility, to be able to handle classified information and to be able to pay for the personnel to ensure that they take care of that, there are procedures, they're too slow and they need to be accelerated and much more toward real time. They don't have to be truly real time. But there's absolutely work to be done there. And I think that comes from the intelligence community. It comes from DHS. I think a stronger demand signal from the private sector will help bring that out over time. You think there is enough in the private sector in terms of vendor solutions to bridge this gap alone? Or do you think the government has to play a bigger role? The government needs to play a bigger role. And a bigger role in this case means two things in particular. One is 
helping companies establish procedures so that they're able to receive classified information on an ongoing and expedited basis and to push that down to smaller and smaller companies. There's risk associated with that. There's risk of a leak. There's risk that because the information is more widely accessed that it's diluted and so forth, but that needs to be done. And secondly, that the government has to apply resources so that the companies are more able to accept more information. The government has a spigot and has the ability to provide that information. And it means more people, it means more IT, and it means more time, initially on senior policymakers and over time on the working level. So we had Dave McCurdy on uh, not too long ago. And Dave, as the president of the American Gas Association, was pretty clear when he said, government is going to have to play a bigger role basically helping us. They're going to have to play a bigger role as we deal with nation-state level capabilities and actors who have the intent, to Kirsten's point, have the intent and the capability. We can't do it alone. Where do you think the water's edge is on what the government should be doing beyond just information sharing, right? It is, there'll come a point where critical infrastructures will be attacked and where does the government recognize and all the title concerns we have here? Where and how should the government be able to intervene to protect? There's no single point answer to that question, as you know well, Roger. <laughs> We're going to um, expand for at least an hour and a half because there's a lot to it. The answer is going to vary by sector, by adversary, and by scenario to some degree. And so working through these issues, I'm going back again to the earlier point, working through these issues in campaign planning that allows not a single point solution, but a portfolio of approaches consistent with an overall strategy and a playbook of actions to be taken by government and by private sector is going to make a lot of sense. One quick additional point, as you think about those authorities to respond to the degree to which you have a combination of dual-hatted or multiple-headed individuals with knowledge. So a private sector person who also is in the National Guard could potentially bring the private sector experience and authority to act for their company. They could bring the state authorities that go with being National Guard, and if federalized, could bring those authorities as well. So we have to look at operating models that are different and that allow these authorities to be brought together in a single organization, but also with individuals who have effectively wear multiple hats. So as a follow-on to that, one of the things that we look at in industry is industry goes very deep, obviously within its sector. And if you look at post-9-11 structure, we have the information sharing and analysis centers, the information sharing and analysis organizations, essentially how industry can know its threat that's relevant to that industry very well. And what we talk about is government knows nation-state threat. And to Roger's earlier point, government knows what's happening across nation-states, across sectors. Are there lessons that we can learn from how the Department of Defense looks at cross-sector information sharing or cross-sector threats that we can apply to industry more effectively? Because as we enter this era of interdependencies, or we're, we're well in this era of this interconnectedness, we understand that we're no longer really looking at threats by sector because they're all connected. And are there lessons we can pull from DOD to help us manage that threat more effectively? Kristen, that's just a great question. And just to make sure I understand the point, it's, for example, the financial sector is dependent on electricity. The electricity sector is dependent on financial transactions, both right, the IT backbone. And so you've got that sector as well, and you could throw in others into that mix. We heard DHS address this essentially for the first time at the end of July in this summit. They said, we're going to look at three sectors because they're all connected. I would argue you've got to look much broader than that quickly. But yes, exactly. Yep. And then you've got the situation where different sectors are making progress at different pace. I actually think from what I've seen, the, the financial ISAC is 
moving ahead pretty briskly and made some really good progress, more so than others. And over time, it will also be the case that there'll be innovation in one that could be transferred to the others in addition to mutual dependency. So the case for what you've suggested is incredibly strong. And the broad lesson I would take from the Department of Defense history goes back to the Goldwater Nichols Reorganization Act of 1986. It was not easy to do. When you go for the big reorganization, it was resisted by the department. And so there is going to be friction as you go forward. And what that leads me to ask is, first, how far can you go with voluntary sharing of information across those and having some individuals who sit in more than one ISAC, Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and I know it puts an added burden on some, but go where you can voluntarily, look for best practices, lessons learned, mistakes made, and so on, and then work through an alternative structure that will take more time to put in place and that will be resisted by some. So when you were still under Secretary of Defense, you gave testimony that at the time I thought was going to make a ton of news, but it didn't, which is probably good for you. Probably but so. You said something <laughs> pretty significant. You said there was over a hundred different nation state actors who were actively targeting DOD's network. So I can use one hand and maybe two to count the potential adversaries that are out there. That means there's a large number of family and friends who are looking to get inside our networks to steal information, intellectual property, all of that. So from a state-sponsored espionage perspective, what should we be doing better with industry to make them understand that it's not just the big four, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, but it's also our friends as well because they want to know what we're doing for a variety of different reasons. Roger, thanks for reminding me of testimony <laughs> that probably shouldn't have. PTSD. Have, you know, that was great. I used that in speeches for like two years. And do you know what the Pentagon said? In reality, that went through security review, and I thought it would make a splash because it was an important point. The reality is that nation states spy on each other. President Obama was very forthright in saying this on multiple occasions. We have a famous no-spy relationship with the UK, and it's famous because it's relatively unique. So this should not surprise us. I don't see us, however, having tailored strategies towards protecting information in the defense industrial base or elsewhere against 100 potential hackers, infiltrators, et cetera, consciously not calling them attackers. Because I do think that espionage is a part of the way the international system operates. It has a longstanding history. And guess what? People use IT as a critical tool in doing that. As We, we do as it, we, and we're really we good at it. And that's a good thing for us, and particularly because adversaries can work from, let's say, second or third tier companies back up into the prime contractors. It means that the work that's been done within the defense industrial base to protect intellectual property needs to go a lot further. There's been good progress. There, there has been work within the department and among particularly the major contractors to harden their IT. A lot more needs to be done. So just to follow up with that, because you alluded to supply chains and looking at where we are in securing supply chains, so specifically small and medium-sized businesses. So I was at an event where I spoke at recently, and I had two members of the Pentagon approach me about the need to secure, do a better job of helping small businesses secure themselves because particularly when you're looking at procurement and there is a real weakness in the security of those companies because they don't have the resources and they're trying to prioritize their assets and what they're producing for all sorts of reasons. And we've tended to have an approach to small businesses, which is, well, the big businesses in your ISAC, your information sharing and analysis center or your industry can help you because they can tell you what they've done. 
and I'll make the correlation pediatric medicine, right? So we have adult medicine to treat diseases, and then there for a long time, we just took that approach and we applied it to children. And we now know that that doesn't work. There for all sorts of reasons. Children are very different than adults. Small businesses are very different than large enterprises. What do you think we need to be doing, either both within government and industry and together, to help those small businesses that are part of our value chains at the Department of Defense and just in government writ large be more secure, particularly when it comes to cybersecurity? Kristen, it's a great question. The answer is not a lot more regulation because small businesses can't tolerate the paperwork and the process associated with that. What's probably most important is to get some examples of success in key sectors. And to do that, the federal government will have to devote resources to working with a handful of smaller companies to look at what their current posture is and how it can be improved on the cheap, and then to attempt to take the best practices from those companies and the best ideas from the conversation that they have and look at low-cost ways to apply them. I do think that over time, that continuing to establish and reinforce standards for supply chain as well as other elements of IT security makes sense. To go from zero to 100 on that, it's just not going to be possible for small companies. It's a long road, and we'll never have 100% security. We'll always have remaining vulnerabilities. And so, you know, after taking a few small companies, learning lessons, and beginning to apply it, the next step is to prioritize the implementation against the systems that are most important. And that includes things like nuclear command and control, more broadly, national command and control, our nuclear weapons, our long-range strike systems for the Department of Defense. And similarly, for other elements of, of critical infrastructure, there's got to be a prioritization and spend the money where necessary to harden the infrastructure and avoid imposing costs on other areas where you can mitigate risks or accept risk. Jim, you are now the first guest on a segment we've just started called The Recovering Bureaucrat. And in all seriousness, we look at all the negativity that we see in the press and elsewhere about government service right now. But all three of us served. We are recovering bureaucrats. And I think it's an opportunity for us to talk about what is right about government service, why government does make a difference. So I'll start off. When I was in government, the two places where I found that were the most amazing experiences were, one, when you walk into the West Wing of the White House and you understand the importance of where you are and the gravity of what you're looking to do. And then the second thing is when I worked in OSD, when I was surrounded by men and women in uniform coming from fantastic overseas commands and learning the lessons that they imparted about how they led, how they were able to do their jobs, and just all of the information that they were able to bring to me and to others about what military service and serving our country meant. And I always go back on both of those experiences to remind myself that there is nothing better than government service. I think one of the things that we learn in government is that government is a group of individuals who are all coming together for a broader purpose. And with that means you've got behaviors, you've got approaches, agendas. But one of the most rewarding experiences I had was a group of individuals from different backgrounds, expertise, parties, regions coming together to develop legislation to create the Department of Homeland Security and responding as a group of individuals to a serious national threat. We can talk later about the value and where we have challenges and issues, but when individuals are coming together for something much bigger than themselves to address a serious challenge 
and to have success to see that legislation pass and to look at how we are muling through this process of homeland security and using a term that wasn't even in our language over 19 years ago. That's rewarding. And I think for me, the piece that we always have to remember is that individuals serve in government truly for something bigger than themselves. And it is important and critical. And we have to always recognize that at that core and the foundation is working towards something bigger than yourself and working toward a greater good. I went into government in the Obama administration, believing that the opportunity to work for President Obama, whom I viewed as a strong leader and indeed visionary, and to do so working for a Republican Secretary of Defense was an opportunity to push forward on a range of issues that could be sustainable over time, could be sensible policies and sustainable over time. And I think we accomplished that in some areas. And having the honor to work for those individuals and others like Michelle Flournoy and Leon Panetta was incredible. At the absolute top of the list was the amazing honor to work on a daily basis with people in uniform and out of uniform, both our military and our civilians, who were there every day giving in all that they had uh, and literally laying their lives on the line in order to make our country safer. That was it for me. And I don't know if there'll be time, but just a brief anecdote. When sequestration hit and it was time to do furloughs, we had to furlough a good number of people in, in my office and Office of the Secretary of Defense for policy. The predominant complaint and almost the only complaint that I heard from the team that got furloughed is, wait a second, are you telling me I actually can't work? I'll work for free. Who's going to take care of my issues when I'm gone? I'll work for free. How about, okay, you'll take my BlackBerry? Okay, how about if I use my personal equipment? (laughs) And the lawyer said, no, no, none of that. You can't be in contact. You can't do it. It was the commitment. And you see that every day, uh, not just in the Department of Defense, but across the board in this government, the um, extraordinary commitment and a tremendous amount of talent that is really a national resource of this great country. Jim, that's a reminder of, of why we serve and why government service is important. We want to thank you very much for joining CyberCast. It was a fantastic conversation, and uh, we look forward to get you on again pretty soon. Thank you, Jim, very much. Thanks for your time. Thank you both. Great pleasure. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of CyberCast. We hope you enjoyed the show. 